started appreciating Australian music um, as an all-round thing a couple of years ago until, until a few years ago I really didn't understand why people were always so patriotic and why music was always so geographical. <laughs> like, I don't care if none of my bands are from Australia, it's really irrelevant where the bands come from. But now I, I get it. Like bands like Midnight Oil and bands like UMI and all these great bands that have been around for ages and just consistently making good music. Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and in this episode, we'll be talking about Silverchair's fifth and final album, Young Modern, again. This episode will cover the rest of the songs on Young Modern, tracks 6 through 11, as well as the reception to it and some other discussions around the album as a whole. In addition, I'll have some things to say about the future of this podcast, since we've reached its logical endpoint. But before we get to that, just some housekeeping. I again want to thank everyone who has been listening and supporting the show. If you want to spread the word about the show, please share the content I make on social media, Instagram at Silverchair Podcast and Facebook.com slash Silverchair Podcast. And also just tell people about the show. There are still lots of Silverchair fans out there who don't know about the podcast and I need your help to alert them to what I'm doing. So if a friend asks you what podcast they should listen to, tell them this one. And of course, ranking and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your app of choice if they have a ranking system really does help as well. If you're feeling especially generous, you can always support the show directly at the PayPal link in the episode description. This really helps keep the show going in a material way. As I just mentioned, I am on social media or you can email me at silverchairpodcast at gmail.com. Also, I am now on Patreon. Yes, I know it might seem a little strange to be starting a Patreon now, since by the end of this episode, I'll have covered all of Silverchair's studio albums on the main feed, but I still have many tricks up my sleeve going forward. So in case you don't know what Patreon is, it's a place where for a small monthly fee, you can support the show and also get access to exclusive content, which will be forthcoming. In the future, this will mean behind the scenes content, live Q&As, and even some Patreon exclusive episodes. If you're not interested or can't afford to, I totally get it. I'm just letting you know that it's happening. In any case, you can find the link to it in the episode description. And just a reminder that if you were thinking about becoming a podcaster, I highly recommend Buzzsprout, which is my podcast host. It's been a super easy platform for me to use, and they take the hassle out of managing a podcast. So if you do happen to be looking for a podcast host, I do highly recommend Buzzsprout. And if you go to the affiliate link in the episode description and sign up using my link, you get a free $20 Amazon gift card. Okay, let's get going with the rest of Young Modern. There was a man that knew too much 
on a nice groove from Ben, Chris and Paul Mack, who played keyboard on this song. The man who knew too much, sorry, that's the man that knew too much, ungrammatical as that is, is a good, maybe not great song on Young Modern. It feels weird to say that about a Silverchair song after at least two full albums of great to amazing songs, but here we are. On its surface, this is a fairly straightforward song, but it does have some of those classic Daniel idiosyncrasies in the melody, such as the accidental F note at the end of the verse, or really the pre-chorus in the struck down open to the fact, the O of open is out of key, which makes this part of the melody descend chromatically. And then, classic silverchair move, there's a key change at the chorus, from G major to A major, with a descending melody. Chorus chord progression is actually really cool. Daniel using a lot of sus4, minus seven, and augmented chords to further contrast the chorus from the verses, which use more standard major minor chords. My favorite part of the song is the bridge, where it goes into the woohoo, I'm not your mockingbird section. built around a chord progression from D to B, but alternately adding the suspended second and suspended fourth notes, it really provides that sense of movement, like the song is again on train tracks, which is a musical metaphor that does keep coming up on Young Modern, and these kind of chord voicings come up again on Mind Reader to better effect, I think, which we'll get to presently. Now, in case you don't know what I'm talking about and want to know what I'm talking about, a suspended chord is one where the third is missing and it's replaced with the second or the fourth. Now, in practice, that just means that instead of a major chord, you get something that sounds like this. So putting the suspended chord next to its major chord sounds like this. Or in the context of this song, like this. called suspension and resolution because when you go back to the major it sounds resolved oh geez i'd be a bad music teacher anyway it sounds cool this suspended to major chord progression is a trick daniel uses a lot on young modern Um, i've mentioned it a couple of times already and i bring it up because i don't think he ever did this on any previous album and yet we get to the last album and he's throwing in all the sus chords for this exact effect on almost half the songs It gives the album a very new wave or even post-punk feel, and it brings a sense of musical cohesion to the whole album. Look, The Man That Knew Too Much is a good song. Maybe it is a great song and I've been a little harsh on it. I think what doesn't always click for me is the chorus. It's a little underwritten from what we've come to expect from Daniel. 
I mean, hell, the first five songs on this album are all outstanding, in my opinion, depending on what you come to the band for, of course. Lyrically, The Man That Knew Too Much seems, to me, thematically to touch on the Cassandra myth, the idea that someone can see the future but is never believed when they try to warn people. Is Daniel the man that knew too much? There are lines that do reference time, such as a chance to numb his golden touch, to ignore the will of time, and time is not a moment we're letting slip away. A chance to numb his golden touch, to ignore the will of time, had me struck down. There is, of course, the Alfred Hitchcock film, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is more about unknowingly having a piece of information that other people want and being chased down to get it. This might also relate. Going with the insomnia theme is The Man That Knew Too Much, the song, referring to someone who, because of his lack of sleep, has more time to think and therefore learns the horrible truth of something. In the bridge, the lyrics are, I'm not your mockingbird that sings your cellar song. She got a paper run to write your letters wrong. Firstly, there's a nice little Daniel play on words there. Write your letters wrong. Write wrong. But what's the significance of the mockingbird? Possibly the idea that, since a mockingbird mimics other sounds, Daniel is not a mockingbird, singing the same old stuff that you, the audience, might want to hear. Cellar songs could refer to drinking songs, songs that people hear when they're at a gig or a bar or whatever, and Daniel is decidedly not doing that. Then again, he did say he wanted to draw in a new audience with this album, so in a way, maybe he is singing cellar songs. So there also could be in this song the idea that Daniel has seen the future of Silver Chair, and not only is it short-lived, it's more songs like this, which is a change of direction for the band. This song could be heading people off of the past, saying, this is us now, don't wish for the past, because time is not a moment we're letting slip away. And that's the horrible truth. This is what he knows that's too much. But that's all conjecture. I should also note that this is track six on the album, meaning it's the last song that Daniel intended to link up lyrically to the previous songs. So how successful was it? To be honest, aside from the theme of sleep and insomnia, which I feel continues later in the album as well, I don't know how much I can pass the first six songs as relating specifically to each other that also don't relate to the other songs on the album. Daniel has said that those six lyrics are all different interpretations of similar subjects, but this could be one of those things that only makes sense in the author's mind. One thing I could say is that both If You Keep Losing Sleep and Reflections of a Sound seem to refer to the partner's experience of being with someone with insomnia. Straight Lines references waking up strong in the morning, which sounds like an inverse of the insomnia theme, like imagining a restful night that he so far hasn't achieved. Straight Lines and Young Modern Station are tied together musically, both with that keyboard pulse and the sense of being on train tracks. The Straight Lines music video features the band playing at Young Modern Station as well. As for a lyrical link, Young Modern Station does mention clocks are ticking timeless, perhaps an insomnia reference. Does it make you cry when I make you feel so far away? Could also fit here. Someone being so tired they're not present. I think I'm hearing voices works in this sense too. 
I've talked about how those thieving birds slash strange behavior, and if you keep losing sleep, both have this mirrored structure where one section represents the waking life and the other the dream. And come to think of it, are the birds thieving Daniel's sleep with their bird song, which tends to happen in the early morning when most people are waking up? Food for thought. Waiting all day. I wrote the music to that with Jules in Windsor. I'm a really big Presets fan. I really love what, what he does as a songwriter. And so I just asked him one day, do you want to write a couple of tracks together? And Waiting All Day was one that we just sat down and I just said, I want to write a track like Roy Orbison or something like that, like a classic old timeless song with no tricks, classic structure. Remember when I talked about Silverchair for the first time maybe ever being consciously retro with their music? I think Waiting All Day is the prime example of that on this album. In fact, Waiting All Day, Low, and even The Man That Knew Too Much fit into this for me. Something about each of those songs doesn't quite work for me completely. And that's three songs out of 11. The other seven songs on this album, I think, are pretty brilliant. But with these songs, it's the same problem I brought up with Reflections of a Sound, which to reiterate, I think is a brilliant song, but it is consciously retro. And with Reflections of a Sound, it works. But with some of these other songs, it airs on the side of bland. These issues, I think, extend to the lyrics as well, at least my issue with them. Maybe one affects the other, I'm not sure. In these songs, the lyrics seem blander than Daniel had been writing before. I mean, this was a guy who got the phrase, you brighten my life like a polystyrene hat, into a hit song. But now he was singing pop rock cliches like, I've been waiting all day, I've been waiting all year for you, it's true. The melody for the chorus of Waiting All Day is also a little bit simpler, and maybe blander, than what we've come to expect from Daniel, so the combination of a less interesting melody plus less interesting lyrics means this song does not necessarily make its case for existing in the same way that many of the other songs in this album do. I do wonder whether it's the case of them going, we've got all these weird bonkers songs like If You Keep Losing Sleep and Those Thieving Birds, it's fine to balance it out with a couple of sweet, digestible songs up the back end of the album. By the way, I actually don't want to lay this at the feet of Daniel's co-writer on a couple of those songs, Julian Hamilton, though he did co-write Waiting All Day with Daniel. After all, Julian also co-wrote Straight Lines, Young Modern Station, and Mind Reader, and I love all of those songs. Another of Daniel's controversial collaborators, Luke Steele, has a credit on this song, but only for backwards vocals. No co-writing. 
There are some things I do really like about Waiting All Day, though. I actually really like the lyrics in the first verse in particular. I took advantage of a straight-believing town that tore the bandage and said, look who's bleeding now. If that line's not about Newcastle, maybe I'm just being too literal with Daniel's lyrics, which is always a fool's errand. But at least for me, it conjures up images of the way his town and the media treated him back in the day. The second verse seems to reference this as well. He's been beaten, must have brought it on himself, so he stopped reading every book on mental health. So I do like these lyrics. Unfortunately, I don't think the music is up to the task of making these lyrics hit as hard as they could, especially in the chorus. That's what I mean when I say one affects the other. It's a very pretty, subtle melody and a lot more normal sounding than Silverchair had sounded to this point. Palatable. We heard Daniel say that the pitch to Julian for this song was something without tricks that sounds like Roy Orbison. I think I see that comparison, but again, it's self-consciously retro. To its credit, I think the melody does go really well with those lyrics, and the song is most effective when the lyrics hit harder, so the phrase, look who's bleeding now, resolves to the same note that the verse melody starts on. They both start and end on the A-flat. Which is the root note. This song is in the key of A-flat major. That's just good classic songwriting. There's no key change or weird melodic shift like we hear in many other Silverchair songs, even ones on this album. No tricks. The closest thing to a trick or a turn in the music is just before the chorus, where there's an accidental note at the others in Are You Faithless Like The Others? giving it maybe a very slight sense of foreboding, which is backed up with a D-flat 9 chord, which doesn't appear anywhere else in the song. But all of that is washed away with the serene, placid chorus. Actually, I tell a lie. This song does have more interesting parts than I initially gave it credit for. The ending of the chorus, where Daniel sings, For You, It's True, goes to a really well-placed minor chord before resolving back to that major that the chorus keeps returning to. By the way, this is another song that's played with a capo, so if the chords I'm saying sound wrong, that's why. The bridge does some interesting things melodically, including that honky-tonk piano I mentioned on previous songs and some more accidental notes that take the song, if not to a complete gear shift, at least in a slightly new direction. Speaking of the honky-tonk piano, the instrumentation for Waiting All Day is actually really nice. We have a nice warm Rhodes piano under the verses, we have a pedal steel played by Michelle Rose, and we have those lovely ringing chords of Daniel's Telecaster. The vocal arrangement in the coda at the end is testament to how much Daniel's confidence as a vocal arranger was growing. I really like the backing vocals here.
It's not quite the Beach Boys, but he's multi-tracked himself and possibly some of the other credited backup singers, including Luke Steele, Nao Wallace and Elisa Gomez, for a really pretty conclusion to the song until it fades out which I don't think he'd done since The Dissociatives, and I don't think he'd ever done on a Silverchair album. When you look at the sheet music for Waiting All Day, the style marking is listed as cruisy rock, and that's a pretty good summation of what this song is. It's cruisy. It's pretty. It's fine. It was really important to me to not try and try and do kind of Dharama part two, you know. So I was just trying to think of a new way to approach music and to, to kind of leave Dharama alone and stop trying to get bigger and bigger with every record. Mm-hmm. I really wanted this record to be a different direction and to focus more on more on the band and to make like a you know like a psychedelic pop rock or heavy rock record. That was that was the goal as opposed to making another big orchestral epic rock record I really wanted this to, this record to be a lot more a lot more funky and a lot more a lot more fun and more adventurous The first time I heard Mind Reader would have been on the Homebake 2006 show, which was broadcast on Channel V. I believe at that gig they played Young Modern Station, If You Keep Losing Sleep, and Mind Reader. I seem to remember that they were playing straight lines at gigs around this time as well, but they never made it to broadcast, possibly to not reveal what the new single was going to be in a few months' time. My initial impression of the new songs was, if the whole album sounds like those three songs, I'm going to love it. And I was mostly right. I love Mind Reader. It's another retro sounding song, sure, but like reflections of a sound, it works because they lean into it, while at the same time letting Daniel's eccentric take on the vocals run wild. It's the best combination of the retro and original thing that Silverchair hit on with this album. Daniel said it sounds like the Rolling Stones crossed with Captain Beefheart, which makes sense to me. It's got a chromatic bluesy thing going on in the chorus proper, and the verses are suitably unhinged in a very Daniel Johns way. And the verses are based on an honest-to-God rock guitar riff, which isn't something you can say about much of Young Modern, or even much of Diorama. We also get more honky-tonk-esque electric piano, courtesy of Paul Mack, who, I have to say, does some outstanding and subtle work on this album. There's even that possibly soul-influenced do-do-do-do-do section coming into that second verse. The chorus, or actually the pre-chorus, I guess, depending on how you want to think of it, the still-it-seems-funny part, is again based on going from a major chord and then its suspended variant. The vocal melody basically follows how that major suspended shift goes. (laughs) 
As I mentioned before, before Young Modern, Daniel didn't do this very much or at all. So it's on purpose. And here it's really highlighted by also following that vocal melody. It's similar to what he does in the lever from Diorama in the turn the mirrors face the wall part where he essentially sings along with the riff. It's not a songwriting trick you can always rely on, but when it works, like it does here, it really works. And as I probably mentioned on a really early episode, it's a very Black Sabbath thing, though obviously in this song, it doesn't sound like a Black Sabbath influence. The chorus proper, the don't know what you want part, is almost dissonant. The way it shifts back and forth between the semitones of E and E flat chords, making it sound almost stuck in a record groove. provides such a great contrast to that pre-chorus, the still it seems funny part, which has so much movement by comparison. I should also note that the Young Modern liner notes credit Julian Hamilton with writing the chorus lyrics of Mind Reader. So I guess that's the don't know what you want, I'm not a mind reader baby, which does with that knowledge sound like quite an un-Daniel line. And it's the first time I believe Daniel shared writing credits for lyrics ever. Speaking of lyrics, after the relative blandness of some of the other lyrics on this album, Mind Reader is back to proper bizarre Daniel lyrics. I heard a hole in the silence. I saw a crack in the plan, but I got lazy ways. You're not a private detective. Take off your telephone shoes. My thoughts going out of phase. And these are better days. Great stuff. And Daniel's vocal delivery here is, as I think I've described before, very live sounding like it was one crazy take that some producers would maybe have him do again and save the theatrics for the live show. But here it slipped through to the final product. That doesn't work for me on every song, but here it really does. As with the rest of the album, the way the vocals are produced is very dry and has that John Lennon, Phil Spector, shallow reverb, but here it works for the effect it brings to the, again, unhinged style of Daniel's vocal delivery. I love it. Mind reader rules. It's not what you might have expected from a silver chair rocker, but it's an absolute barnstormer all the same. But while I've brought it up, let's quickly touch on Daniel's different approach to the vocals, both performance-wise and production-wise, on Young Modern. You might remember from my interview with Nick Lornay that he brought up that he didn't think the vocal takes were the best they could have been. And I was quite quick to agree with him. They are really dry and they sound to me, as I said in the interview, like he sounds live, but on an off night. In fact, when I first heard Young Modern, I remember thinking, oh, Daniel is finally putting on an album the way he's been singing live for years, which is a lot of extra performance, sometimes over singing, a lot of falsetto and... Yeah, a bit pitchy. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a definite and present change from every other time we'd heard his voice on tape. Now, the fact that Nick said this makes me think he must have brought it up at the time. You know, let's get better vocal takes. But Daniel, now almost a decade on from the last time they had worked together, and also now in a co-producer role, overruled him. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I think some of his performances on Young Modern are still brilliant. His high B flats in straight lines are incredible. But his falsetto on Young Modern at times sounds a little more wonky than it did on the Dissociatives album. And songs like Waiting All Day, which heavily rely on it, to me do not sound consistently great. Now, I would say I have a slight prejudice against falsetto singing. It does mean false voice, after all. But I love it on the Dissociatives. I just think it became a bit of a performance crutch and also a writing crutch in this late era of Silverchair. We can also speculate that, as I'll talk about later, Daniel was suffering from some vocal health issues at the time, or at least lifestyle issues that weren't good for his voice in the long run. But let's move on. I'm I'm completely aware of the expectations, which is sometimes hard, but it, I don't know, sometimes it really makes me write really horrible songs because I can't, I feel like I can never live up to what people expect. But um, sometimes I think it makes me do something better. I hope it does, I can't tell. I've got no perspective, but it, there's, I'm definitely aware of the expectation constantly, which is a good and, and bad thing. I think it's I think it's worked to my advantage this time, possibly. Okay. <laughs> like, I, I kept feeling like there was more and more pressure with every album until we did Diorama and then I went off and did the Dissociatives thing. And now there's... It's more of a... It feels like more of an artistic pressure than a commercial pressure, so it's actually more fun to try and live up to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas before it felt like... I had to keep coming up with, you know, hits... And now it feels like I've got to come up with something good, so it's a better pressure. Daniel doing interviews from around this time saying Young Modern was more ambitious, you definitely understand what he means. But then you hit a song like Low and you kind of think, this is just fine. It's not ambitious, but it's fine. Low is another song in the cruisy rock genre or easy rock as the style marking on the sheet music says. You could actually be forgiven for thinking Low was co-written by Daniel's good friend Luke Steele whose band The Sleepy Jackson was fond of the slide guitar that prominently appears in this song. But Daniel is the only credited writer on Low. Incidentally, the slide guitar on this song isn't played by Luke Steele at all. It's played by Elaine Johannes, and it's the first time, I believe, a slide had appeared on a Silverchair song, not counting the lap or pedal steel guitars, which had appeared on both this album and Diorama. So as with my misgivings about a couple of the other songs in this album, even when I feel a song has been slightly underwritten, there's usually something great at some point to stop the whole thing from becoming a complete missed opportunity. They all have at least one redeeming musical or lyrical thing about them to help them stand out. In the case of Low, it's this part. 
I really like how the start of the chorus juts up against the verse and how the rhythm section, Ben, Chris and Paul, I believe, catches each of Daniel's words, triplet crotchets and then a dotted crotchet. Great power trio, or in this case, I guess, power quartet playing. The layered harmonies and oo-oo's are also really nice. Also like how in the second half of each verse, Daniel does that O oh, to start the phrase. That's pretty cool as well. In this song as well, Daniel again pulls out his now standard trick on Young Modern of going from the major chord to the suspended chord. It happens during the chorus and also during the bridge, though admittedly in a more subtle way and for a different effect to how it's used elsewhere on the album. But I really like this as a musical idea that ties the whole album together in a way that isn't obvious. In fact, I think no matter what you think of Young Modern as an album, Daniel was able to make an album that sounded coherent musically while also being different musically to any other Silverchair album. As he said, people by now had expected something different from every Silverchair album. Nobody could claim he didn't deliver on that. At the very end of the song, where the ooh-ooh backing harmonies seem to just build and build, Daniel does throw in a bit of dissonance here. Which for a split second heavily reminds me of the dissociatives. In fact, I feel like if this song was run through some kind of dissociatives filter, and by that I probably mean Paul Mack having some input, it would be more successful for me. Lyrically, I think Daniel is best lyrically when he's being weird. When he tries to write like a regular rock band or a standard rock song, the results can be, well, bland. So for example, in low, we have, I feel so low, I feel so high, which just feels too much like an approximation of classic rock lyrics, which is never what Daniel's strengths were. It's probably notable also that this song contains more rhyming than Daniel usually did, So in the verses we have, have you ever been lost like a fading frost, stolen your pride, sits aside. And in the bridge we get, feeling hollow, head to toe low. Even though that is quite a clever rhyme, it doesn't really have impact because the sentiment seems shallow or more surface level. I won't even bring up that solo could be read as solo, as in I'm going off to have a solo career. But this rhyming fits with the sense that this song is a cruisy soft rock song, but I do wonder how the song would feel with a more dissociative style lyrical take. All that said, Low, despite the title, definitely fits with this album being more of an up-sounding album than any previous Silverchair release. Even on Diorama, the joy was always tempered with some melancholy. Here, despite Low's lyrics maybe having some of that shading and the chord progression heavily features minor chords, the music is bright and, well, up. And we can't begrudge Daniel wanting to be happy, after all these years. 
was first writing the record, it was intended to be a tribute to sleep or lack thereof. Every song was kind of about uh, sleeplessness and insomnia. Why? Just because I wasn't sleeping when I was writing it, so... You thought you were suffering from insomnia? Yeah, pretty badly. So I, was, I, I wrote a track about, about that and really liked the track and ended up writing about six or seven tracks that all... Oh, kind of encapsulated. What was the what was the effects of uh, <coughs> of your insomnia? Because it can send people totally stark raving bonkers. Yeah, it was pretty. Um, <laughs> yeah, you should have been there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty intense for a while, but um, it was, I, I I guess I just kind of embraced it. It was when I was doing a lot of the demos for this stuff. interviews from around this time, Daniel talked about how much of this album was written during bouts of insomnia. The song Insomnia is obviously the most literal of these. Musically, I love the verses in Insomnia. I love the palm-muted chords and the melody that really stands out against the more sparse arrangement. The chord progression in the verses changes as the melody does. It follows it. It's great writing. So I've always loved the verse melody in this, not as much a fan of the chorus. Choruses that repeat the same phrase over and over have never really been my thing. Though it does have an interesting thing, again, with some accidental notes, so that wake for in awake for days, and again in wake in, in the phrase wake in a days, are not in key. And then the kappa to the chorus, I'm a maze of chains, walks the vocal melody chromatically down from G sharp to G to F sharp to F. While at the same time, the chords underneath harmonize with the vocal melody, going backwards from C sharp to C to B to B flat. So the vocal melody is singing a fourth harmony with the chords underneath. In fact, both the verses and the choruses use that fourth harmony a lot, which is cool, but not necessarily unique. Though I should note that if you do play that fourth harmony with those chords, you get the same kind of chords that Daniel was using all the way back in Tomorrow and Anna's song. But that's kind of the thing with a few of the songs on Young Modern. They have parts I absolutely love, and then I feel that they're slightly let down by a lacklustre chorus or bridge. It's weird just saying that. I haven't really had a criticism of Daniel's songwriting since Freak Show. His lyrics may be sure, but his sense of melody and chord choices were almost always unassailable. The demo version of Insomnia has a much more Beatles-esque take on the material than the, I guess, Stones-esque take on the final album, with more prominent piano.
There's also some different vocal harmonies in the chorus in the demo version. Chorus of Insomnia is the one time I think Sewer Chair actually did write a riff that sounded like Nirvana, and you can't even really tell because the rest of the song around it is completely bizarre. But that chorus riff, A, F, F sharp, D, bar chords, is straight out of the Nirvana playbook. The second last song on their last album ever. But with this riff, they were not referencing Nirvana. They were most likely referencing the kind of new wave stuff that Kurt Cobain said he was referencing as well. Now the bridge to this song is interesting, sort of based around the verse progression but then also not, the bridge changes the tone of the song, bringing the song down a notch just to build it back up again for the final chorus. I love the way the guitar line follows the vocal melody, and the tone of that guitar gives me a bit of an Ennio Morricone spaghetti western feel. Times during Insomnia, Daniel really lets loose with the vocal performance, such as in the second verse, I need to get some sleep slash resolution. The way he articulates the word resolution is a prime example of the way he sings on this album, and what I mean when I say he's using a more live singing style rather than in the much more clean, controlled, almost overproduced style he had for Diorama and the Dissociatives. The lyrics to Insomnia are almost painfully straightforward when viewed through the lens of staying up all night writing songs. Tomorrow will be another part of yesterday, and yesterday will be another part of the day before. Wait, I hear another song, Insomnia, about the days I wasn't tired. And then the chorus, I stay awake for days, but I'd sit awake in a daze anyway. Another Daniel play on words with days, days. There's also a reference in the lyrics to that fun retro look. And since I've been saying throughout these two episodes that this is Daniel's retro album, maybe he already knew that that's how this album might be perceived. Daniel had also started dressing a bit more retro around this time with the stage attire of rock star headbands like a 70s or 80s tennis player and vests without a shirt underneath. Again, maybe he was having a go at himself before anyone else could, though I have to say he made it work. Do you write lyrics last? I read that somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I do. On on Diorama, I, I wrote a lot of... Diorama and Neon Ballroom, I wrote a lot of the lyrics first. Yeah, but this record, I, I definitely was procrastinating because I didn't really know what I was going to write about until the last minute. Mostly Insomnia. Yeah, well, the, the ones that were, that were based on Insomnia were well and truly written, but all the other ones, I was waiting to find something other than not sleeping to write about. 
Well, it's, it's almost political on all across the world. Yeah, I mean that 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 song was kind of written to be that was that was inspired by like meditational music and stuff. How it's just constantly looping on itself and doing the same thing and building and building. And I guess I was just trying to write something like an abstract um, alternative psychedelic mantra. Now this is more like it. The third and final Young Modern song that Van Dyke Parks worked on arranging all across the world has that melancholy pop baroque vibe that I at least feel nobody does better. Well, Rufus Wainwright, but that's his whole thing. Strangely, at least to me, all across the world was a B-side on the Straight Lines single. Straight Lines was one of the few CD singles I actually bought and I distinctly remember hearing this song and going, why wouldn't they save this for the album? And then, lo and behold, it's not only on the album, it's the grand closer to the album. Maybe it was a show of goodwill for the fans of Diorama that, yes, Straight Lines is very different to what we've done before, but check out this wild Van Dyke Parks extravaganza. Get you a silver chair that can do both. Now, something quite interesting about All Across the World is that the verses and the choruses have essentially the same melody. Not exactly, but very close. But I think the arrangements around each of the parts hide this and make each section distinct, even though melodically they are so close. The second verse does introduce some melodic variations and Daniel gets to go off into his own world with the wanna tell ya that I love ya, I need ya in the night parts, which is a great vocal performance. This is Daniel just doing whatever he damn well wants before closing the book on Silverchair. By the way, I love the little sample at the start of the chorus. It sounds like a little kid saying mummy or something. I actually have no idea what it is. Let me know if you do. It's so weird though. I love it. This song also utilizes the suspended back to major trick that Daniel has employed elsewhere on this album. But this time he uses it for a different end. Instead of making it sound funkier or more rocky, it works to create an eerie feeling. It happens in the ooze part before the chorus, where the chords alternate from E major, then to E sus, 
back to E major. Again, quite a simple thing, but used to great effect. There is a kind of bridge in the song that is sort of a variation on the main melody, which includes the bonkers performance of Sit There on the Phone Telling Me Baby I'm a Liar. leads into the weird final four bars before we go back to the final chorus, the you don't seem to care what I care about, where Daniel is singing all these accidental notes and really putting some mustard on his vocal performance. then before we get back into the final all across the world refrain there's the whispered to be wasted really cool as for van dyke parks's work it's definitely present but it's almost too much in an already crowded song which i think is maybe what nick lone was getting at when he talked about trying to get daniel to not include every instrument and every melody That said, I actually do really like what Van Dyke adds with his everything but the kitchen sink approach. He makes full use of the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra, adding brilliant little woodwind parts, extra percussion, and carefully deployed strings. But I love that kind of stuff. I do wonder what a more stripped back version might have sounded like. If there's a demo version floating around, I haven't found it, but would love to hear it. By the same token, David Bottrell, who, remember, was called in to do the mix after things went sour with Nick Lornay, does a great job with mixing this track in particular, making sure that there's clarity and separation of sound where there should be. In my chat with him, he talked about thinking of sound as a three-dimensional thing, where you can bring things to the forefront when they need to be, and then have them recede when they're not as important. And I think you can hear that on full display in All Across the World. For the final official song on the final official Silverchair album, it ends things on an upbeat, if not entirely happy note. I don't know if Daniel could have said then that this would be the final Silverchair album, but every album going back to Freak Show could have been the last Silverchair album. And I think listening to those albums with that in mind, the final tracks tend to sound to me like they could function as the kappa to a career. All Across the World ends on the same chord it started on, an E major. which is the key the song is in, of course. So the song resolves, it feels complete, and that's all she wrote. Lyrically, we're back to classic, weird, vague Daniel. After a couple of songs on this album with maybe blander lyrics, it's a great finish on a strong, really odd note. Underneath the shelf, cracks appear in thinking I'm alone. In this life's excuse for wasting time, I wait for signals shooting stars. I scrape through every branch, because I need to come down. Love it. And I love how these lyrics work within that melody with its leaps and runs. It also brings back the idea of Daniel writing strangely, but it's still feeling like it's personal to him. 
Part of me thinks that if it wasn't personal to him, he wouldn't have brought Van Dyke Parks in in the first place. If he's bringing in the big guns like Van Dyke, the song has to mean something. Note that the final line of the chorus changes from Justice shake your head, I'm wasting my time to Justice shake your head, I'm on my way home. Another play on words there too. It sounds like he's saying just to, but the liner notes have it as justice. It's not really a pun or anything, so I'm not sure what justice in this context is meant to mean, but it's clearly meant to sound like just to. And as a message to end a career, you could do worse than the final chorus of this song. All across the world, there are things we need to forget and forgive. Sometimes we have to try and shed the damage we don't need. Oh, just to shake your head, I'm on my way home. And that's Young Modern, the final Silverchair album. As we heard in my interview with Nick Lornay, there were disputes about the final mix of Young Modern, specifically around the number of instruments included, as well as the density of the vocal arrangements. Then, as we heard in my interview with David Bottrell, he was called in to do the final mix, which he completed at Metalworks Recording Studio in his hometown of Toronto, Canada. And somewhere in between, Daniel took co-producer credit. The result is a very dry sounding, at times overstuffed album that still, at least for me, has a clarity to the sound. That's partly to do with the presence of Daniel's vocals, which, as I've mentioned, are very live sounding. There's little of the warmth in his voice, just sonically, I mean, that you got from Diorama or Neon Ballroom. You could never say that Silverchair were repeating themselves. Somewhere along the way as well, Daniel and Paul Mack completed additional recordings, as it says in the liner notes, at the Panic Room Sydney. I'm unclear on whether that was before or after the mixing mix-up. Mastering was done by Bob Ludwig, who had worked with everyone from Megadeth to Janet Jackson in Portland, USA. Straight Lines was released as the first single before the album came out on March 10, 2007. As was custom by now with the band, the album came out 31st of March 2007 in Australia, the same date Diorama had come out. In the US, it came out on the 24th of July. The day before the Australian release, Young Modern had been launched with a live show at Carriage Works in Sydney. Young Modern debuted at number one on the ARIA chart and ended the year in ninth place overall. Young Modern eventually went three times platinum in Australia, selling 210,000 copies. The album also won six ARIA awards, Best Group, Best Rock Album, Single of the Year for Straight Lines, Album of the Year, Highest Selling Single for Straight Lines, and Best Video for Straight Lines. In addition, Straight Lines was number two on Triple J's Hottest 100 behind Muse's Knights of Sidonia. In fact, the top six songs on that year's Hottest 100 were all rock songs. The song also won the APRA Song of the Year, the Songwriters Award, which Daniel shared with Julian Hamilton, an even sweeter award because of its industry cred. The reviews at home were very good. The Sun Herald said, There's a smorgasbord of number ones waiting to happen here. In addition to Straight Lines, chest-thumping first-track Young Modern Station, the manic split-ends-esque frenzy of If You Keep Losing Sleep, dreamy escapism of reflections of a sound, sugar-coated love of waiting all day, the Stones-like bluesy stomp of Mindreader, and the hook-laden catchiness of Low and Insomnia. 
Ah, 2007. What a time to believe that any of those songs would even bother the top spot. Bernard Zool in the Sydney Morning Herald called the album Prog Pop and said it had, quote, the kind of melodies that would feed lesser careers for years. He added, as with every Silverchair album, Young Modern is not just better than its predecessor. It is a generational shift in quality. Will it work commercially? Who knows? But artistically, it is a resounding success. Australian Rolling Stone said, The all-encompassing pop influences, along with the album title, underline the fact that this is Johns' idea of musical futurism. The only remaining question is, the future of which planet? Great review. I don't know what that really is meant to mean, but that's music critics for you. Internationally, Young Modern didn't really set the world on fire sales-wise, but it did get some good reviews. All Music's review said it was a highly ambitious work that happily jumps from glam rock to sweeping orchestral pastiches and almost everywhere in between. While US Rolling Stone said the band were aggressively modern in the long reach of Young Modern. There were, of course, the naysayers. Pop Matters bizarrely said Young Modern displays a band with the talent to do something new without the guts to try. That just strikes me as the exact opposite take to critical consensus. A more positive one was the Associated Press, who said, After breaking nearly every record in the book for an Australian recording artist, it might be time for an American audience to rediscover Silverchair. If only. Unfortunately, in the States, the album peaked at number 70 on the Billboard 200, 20 spots above what Diorama did, in any case, but it soon fell, becoming their worst performing album in the US overall. An early promotional tour of the US in mid-2007, where they gritted their teeth on commercial radio and TV morning shows, as well as performed for the late-night programs, proved not to be the silver bullet the band might have hoped for. Those live TV performances, especially an ill-fated one on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno in July, was a real sliding doors moment. Let me set the table a little first. For my money, Straight Lines had the potential to be the song to restart Silverchair's career in the US, introducing the band to a new audience and reintroducing old fans to their new sound. But a plum spot on Jay Leno's Tonight Show in July 2007 went awry when Daniel developed laryngitis and had one of the most publicly embarrassing live performances an accomplished singer could have. I watched this live on TV and physically felt sick for how bad I felt for Daniel. As a singer, I know those competing instincts of the show must go on versus you can't perform in that state. It's a bizarre performance that bears almost no resemblance to how the song is usually done. And I also do wonder whether they could have chosen to perform a different song, one less vocally demanding. But I guess the band had the feeling, like I did, that Straight Lines had the potential to be a hit and they wanted to put it in front of as many people as they could. And also, as we know, the band were never all that nimble at changing set lists, for better or worse. Once they picked their sets, they stuck to them. 
There was also probably an agreement with The Tonight Show that they would be performing the single, and even a harrowing approximation of straight lines was potentially better than getting on the network's bad side. Now, I have seen people claim that they actually like how quote-unquote raw Daniel's vocal is in that performance, but that's not a raw vocal. One Way Mule is a raw vocal performance. The Tonight Show performance is a painful, sick voice trying and failing to do what it's always done. There's nothing intentional about how it sounds. They did more live performances on that US promo tour, but the only thing that can really fix something like laryngitis is complete and total vocal rest. Even cortisone shots, which I'm sure Daniel was offered and might have even taken, might have dulled the pain, but it wouldn't have changed the quality of the sounds coming out. Two days after the Tonight Show performance, they did the Craig Ferguson show, and Daniel's voice was slightly better, but still not great. He still had no connection between his head and his chest voice in that performance, and I doubt it made people rush out to buy the new album from the boys in Silverchair. At the time, I remember my mother, a singing teacher, who had seen a similarly iffy vocal performance, asked me why they hadn't just changed the key for the song. Daniel was clearly struggling, why not make it easier to sing, especially if he was sick? It's a good question. I've never really worked out why they didn't change the key, other than there is a certain quality of sound that comes when playing the song the way it was intended and recorded. The high notes in straight lines are some of the most difficult in Suwache's whole career, that constant high B-flat above the stave. It's hard enough even when Daniel was in full voice. But who knows, they might have tried it in a lower key and it just wasn't improving. When you have laryngitis, you don't necessarily just lose your high notes either. You lose your low notes as well. But it is funny or interesting to me that, aside from the older songs that were played half a step down live in order to save time on stage, so Israel's son and Emotion Sickness could be played on the same guitar, Daniel often chose not to protect his voice. If you compare it to a band like Metallica, who notoriously play all their songs at least half a step down from the recorded versions when they perform live, it just seems like the smart, sustainable thing to do to keep vocal health on the road. The members of Sewerchair weren't all that old, only in their late 20s at this point after all, but they weren't teens anymore either. You can't just barrel through and have your body hold up forever. At a certain point, something gives. It's admirable in a way how they put their bodies on the line every night, but it's also something that, if we're thinking about reunion chances, might dissuade them, aside from everything else. In August 2007, Silverchair embarked on the Across the Great Divide tour, a co-headlining tour with Powderfinger, where arguably the two biggest bands in Australia at the time toured both metropolitan and regional centres. The tour was big, 33 gigs in 26 towns from one end of the country to the other, 25,000 kilometres with a road crew of 65 people. You need a website because I never understand. I can never yeah. remember. You go. Hi, I'm about it. We're at home, Daniel, here letting you know we have announced our Across the Great Divide Australian yeah. tour dates and we are going everywhere. Yeah. And then I'll do the next bit. And then you just take control. Powderfinger.com, something page. Silverchairpage.com. I'll just get it along. Dot com dot es. Are we rolling in? Hi, I'm Bernard. And I'm Daniel here, letting you know that we're announcing our Across the Australian 
The theme of the tour was reconciliation, organised in part with Reconciliation Australia, a not-for-profit foundation that worked, among other things, to close the life expectancy gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. I don't know how good a look it was having two white bands on this so-called reconciliation tour. I think if you were organising a tour like that today, that's probably not how you'd go about it. But the tour did bring a lot of attention to the cause, and at least some of the supporting acts, depending on where they were, were First Nations people, including Kev Carmody, Troy Casadaly, and Arnhem Land band Nabalek. The two-disc DVD set of the Across the Great Divide shows ended up winning both Silverchair and Powderfinger and Aria in 2008 for Best Music DVD, making it Silverchair's 21st Aria Award from 49 nominations. It's more than a little heartbreaking to go back and listen to the interviews the band did for Young Modern and hear them talk about how excited they were to be playing together again. In fact, the only thing more heartbreaking is seeing the promo they did for the gigs they were doing around 2010, when they talked about being back in the studio again, because, as we know, nothing came from it. How did a band that seemed so vital and ready to take on the world implode only a few years later? We may never know. And then... That was it, sort of. It's around about this point in an episode where I usually tease what came next for the band. It feels like I should be setting up the context for the next episode, but in this case, I'm not quite sure what that will be. I might eventually end up doing an episode on what the next album might have been, though most of that would be pure speculation. In any case, the broad strokes of what happened next are that in July 2009, the band were back in the studio even sharing videos on their website. It seemed like all systems were go for a new album. They had even started performing a couple of new songs at the handful of gigs they did in 2010, those being Machina Collector and Sixteen. They were being introduced on stage as From Our Next Album. They did interviews talking about the recording and how it was going really well, such as this Triple J interview promoting their 2010 shows. Now, uh, you guys are working on some new material and uh, rumour has it that you guys will be performing said new material on the Groove in the Moo tour as you guys head around the country with, with Groove in the Moo. Yeah, yeah we're playing a couple, of, a, new, a couple of new guys. A couple of newies, there'll be a couple there. Yeah? yeah. We're not going to overwhelm Darwin with our new album. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? From start to finish, yeah. first track we're to last. From start to finish, yeah. <laughs> go over a treat. Okay. Great. People like it when you play all the stuff they don't know. Mm. Is it uh, tricky playing this uh, the stuff you're recording live, Ben? Is it, as you're rehearsing it, is it, are you finding it tricky to play? Yeah, there is a couple of songs that are a little, little more challenging than um, stuff we've done in the past. But I guess we, thought the, we felt the same way on some of the stuff from Young Modern and we managed to pull it off. So we'll... We're professionals, we can do it. Their last show, though it wasn't intended to be, was May 22nd, 2010, at the Base in the Grass Festival in Darwin. A year later, in May 2011, where fans might rightly expect that the new album was getting ready to drop, the band instead released the infamous announcement on their website. It read, We formed Silverchair nearly 20 years ago when we were just 12 years old. Today we stand by the same rules now as we did back then. If the band stops being fun, and if it's no longer fulfilling creatively, then we need to stop. Despite our best efforts over the last year or so, it's become increasingly clear that the spark simply isn't there between the three of us at the moment. Therefore, after much soul-searching, we wanted to let you know that we're putting Silverchair into indefinite hibernation, and we've decided to each do our own thing for the foreseeable future. Daniel, Ben, Chris, 25th of May, 2011. 
radio silence. As for me and this show, I'm not planning on going away, not just yet anyway. I've still got some tricks up my sleeve, even if I can't get them out as regularly as I would like. This podcast will not be going into indefinite hibernation, let me tell you that much. So please do stay subscribed and stay in touch. Once again, for those in the back, at Silverchair Podcast on Instagram, facebook.com slash silverchairpodcast, and my email is silverchairpodcast at gmail.com. Until then, remember to rate, review, and stay subscribed. See you in the not-too-distant future. This podcast is written, produced, and performed by me, Daniel Hedger. All Silverchair music is now, as of February 2021, owned by Sony Music Entertainment, in Australia at least. The interview clips from this episode largely come from Triple J, in particular a couple of Robbie Buck interviews, as well as an interview with Matt Schichter. Some clips have been taken from the Making of Young Modern DVD featurette made by Hackett Films. I've also used audio from selected performances and interviews originally broadcast by Channel V. I believe I am using all of these resources, as well as all music, in compliance with copyright.com.au slash about copyright slash exceptions. Yeah.